Well, let's go back to Job chapter 1. I know that I've been kind of lighthearted. I enjoy that. I, I think on a personal level, I think I have more liberty on Sunday nights than I do any other time. I don't know why exactly that is, but um, it's just the way that I feel. And, uh, of course, last week we, we just started the book of Job, so somewhat of a heavier topic. But uh, last week we kind of just gave an introduction and over, overview of the book itself. And among other things, as far as the interpretation of the book of Job, I think it's important to point out that Job had to have lived between uh, the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 and either just prior to Abraham or probably during the same time as Abraham because it's 42 chapters long and the vast majority of it is a theological conversation between Job and his friends. And Job mentions Adam. He mentions the flood, but he never mentions the Abrahamic covenant, uh, Israel, or the law. And so there's no way that could happen unless he was in that time period. So he would have known uh, whatever was passed down to him from Adam and then from Noah and to all the descendants from there. Um, And as I mentioned, Job is historical narrative because... Uh, he was a historical figure. These things really happened. And in fact, uh, both Paul and James reference Job as being a real person and as having authority. And so we know uh, the book of Job is inspired. And really, we looked at the first half of chapter 1 last week and we saw that, among other things, that uh, the, the very first few verses of the book of Job answer a question before it even gets asked. And this, this issue is going to be brought up over and over and over and over again throughout this book, and that is, what did Job do to deserve these horrible trials that came upon him? And the, the writer, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says absolutely nothing. He didn't do anything wrong as far... I mean, he wasn't sinless, but he didn't do anything specific to deserve the trials that would come upon him. And it's just human nature. And... We're going to see this, especially when we get to Job's friends, that it's just human nature to kind of feel like, well, you know, people get what they deserve. And that is the exact opposite of grace, because if we got what we deserve, we'd all be in hell tonight. And so that answers the question before it gets asked. And among other things, we looked at the fact that God was the one that brought Job up to Satan. It wasn't the other way around. And then Job, God gave... Satan, full access to Job, with the exception of his life and his personal health. That comes later. His health does. And so this was God's doing. God orchestrated this. He ordained it. He gave Satan permission uh, to attack his family, to attack his livestock, and and so many things that he had. And we're going to see this come to fruition tonight in the second half of Job chapter 1. And uh, with that in mind, let's go ahead and read the text here. I'll begin in chapter 1 and verse 13. It says, And there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the asses feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God is fallen from heaven, and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, 
The Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they're dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Then Job arose, rent his mantle, and shaved his head, and fell down upon the ground and worshipped, and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for laughter tonight. Lord, we thank you for unity and just uh, the love among this body of believers. Uh, Lord, I, I don't take that for granted because I've seen it the other way around. And uh, it is good for the brethren to dwell together in unity. And uh, God, I just pray that you would empty me of sin and self tonight. And, and Lord, I've been living this text, uh, certainly not to the level of Job, but uh, God, it certainly had a place in my life and in my heart. And I just pray that I could communicate that tonight through your word and uh, God, no doubt uh, there are people even tonight that are going through trials both in this room and on the live stream that are watching. And uh, God, I just pray that you would help them and speak to them. This text has been a rock in my life, and I pray that it could be in theirs. Lord, let us worship you for who you are. And God, I pray for those that maybe not be in a trial, Lord, but uh, they could soak up this information that when a trial comes, it would come to their heart. Empty me of sin and self and fill me your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. Tonight I want to preach on the thought of analyzing our trials. Uh, analyzing our trials and, you know, even reading through the entire book of Job, chapter 1 all the way through 42, we never get an answer as to why his trials occur other than the fact that it was not a punishment from God for sin in the life of Job. And for all the questions that we don't have answers to when it comes to our trials and suffering, there is one question, and if you don't get anything else, you need to get this, which is right out of the gate. Even though when it comes to our trials, I can't guarantee you you're going to have all the answers. I'll be honest, in some of the greatest trials I've ever been through, I look back and I definitely have some answers. God revealed some things and He used it to build Christian character or to reveal something to us, but there's a lot of things I've never gotten answered. And I'm sure you could probably say the same thing. There's a lot of things that when it comes to our trials, we will not get an answer to. But there is one question that by the time this sermon is over with, I promise you that you can answer in any trial you face. And that is, where are these trials coming from? If you can answer that question with confidence, it can get you through anything that you face. And that is, where do our trials come from? And I want you to know at the onset, I'll spend the rest of the message proving this, but our trials and our suffering, as we alluded to last week, our trials and suffering ultimately come from God. God is in control of our suffering and our trials. And this is an incredible comfort and strength for those who have come to embrace this truth. You know, we have a lot of people out in the world, and I would say this is certainly true for the lost. I mean, they're not looking for God. The God is not in their thoughts. But, but even for those who may be in church and may be professing Christians, man, our, our theology sometimes is like cotton candy. I mean, it's sweet, but when you need something, there's nothing there. 
You can't survive. If you're in the wilderness, you're not going to survive off cotton candy. And we kind of have this mentality of, well, you know, if I just do my best and try to live for God, everything's just going to be a bed of roses and everything is it's just going to turn out great. And, and the problem is life has a way of hitting us in the mouth. And then we have to reanalyze what we think about God and suffering and theology and everything else. And trials have a way of doing that. Trials have a way of making us analyze our worldview and what we think about God and, and, and what we think about Scripture. And I love what Dr. Norman Wright said. Norman Wright um, is a Christian counselor, and man, he's been through a lot in his life. He, they had a Down syndrome son, and, and he died uh, very young. I think he was maybe 20. And then his wife battled cancer on and off for 20 years, and she finally passed away a few years ago. And so this is not a man who is speaking from an ivory tower. And I've always had this quote highlighted. I've used it quite a few times. But he said, a person's theology will affect how he or she copes with a crisis. Our lives are based upon our theology. Yet so many people are frightened by that word. Our belief in God and how we perceive God is a reflection of our theology. And those who believe in the sovereignty and caring nature of God have a better basis from which to approach life. In other words, we're all going to face trials. It's guaranteed. Uh, I don't care what Joel Osteen says, every day is not a Friday. So what happens when you have those Mondays in your life? Uh, you, you better know what you believe. And so you, you're much more likely to come through these trials uh, in a much better way if you have a proper understanding going into it. And that's what we're going to try to establish tonight. One of the reasons that the first couple of chapters of Job has been so important to me is it's one of the few texts in all the Bible that really allows us to see behind the curtain. We get to see into essentially the throne room of God and and to see in the spirit world that has so much to do with the physical world that we live in. And we can find comfort from that. Um, So the question I really want to wrestle with tonight is, uh, what kind of trials, really, I mean, if we're going to be specific, what kind of trials is God in control of, and what part does Satan play in them? And uh, let me just go ahead and put this in parentheses, and I'll apply it to everything we talk about. Of all the trials that we're going to look at in this text, Satan is a secondary cause. He is responsible for everything that we're going to see, but he is not ultimately responsible. Satan is a secondary cause, but God is always the primary cause. And you say, well, why would God do that? Because He's God, and His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And personally, I I take much more comfort in the fact that God is in control than Satan being in control. I have much more comfort knowing that God is in control versus that my suffering is just some random act and random circumstance living in a fallen world. There's no comfort in that at all, friend. But I've got, now listen, don't have a heart attack. I've got six things I want to talk about tonight. But it will be infinitely shorter than the points that I preached this morning, so don't get too scared here. But uh, the first thing I want you to know that God is in control of is He is in control of our unexpected trials. Unexpected trials. Look at verse 13. And there was a day. Boy, we ought to underline, highlight, squiggly line, circle that statement right there. There came a day. 
Aren't there just some days in our life that we'll never forget? Some days in our life that we, we almost have in our, just ingrained in our memory that every time of year that day comes up, we remember something that happened to us. Something that occurred. Something we weren't expected, but yet it, it came into our life like a stick of dynamite. And this is the same thing that happens in the life of Job. There, there was a day when the, his sons and daughters, of, talking about Job, were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. What a statement. Uh, I know in our life, certainly, um, I mean, I've got dates. I've, I think about April 27th of 2011, that was the worst tornado outbreak in history. We had so much death and destruction in our state, it was unimaginable. I remember that. I think we could all remember 9-11. Or I think we could all remember, um, or at least in, certainly in my life, I remember April the 14th of 2019. That's when Leah's headache started. It's, it's never gone away since. And I remember that day. We remember these days. And, and, and to us, they're unexpected, but not to God. Uh, and what we're going to see as we go through this text is that Satan does everything strategically in order for maximum heartache and shock effect in order to try to get Job to curse God. And what I find really interesting about this text that we just read is if you put yourself in Job's shoes, I mean, we can, we can read the book. We, we see what happened. We see what was going on behind the scenes. Job didn't have that liberty. He, he couldn't pick up the book of Job and see those things, but we can. He didn't know what was going on. But even without having the book of Job to read from, the way that things happened, there's no way that it was a coincidence. I mean, he, by the time it was all said and done, he had four different servants come up to him. It's almost the picture that's painted here. It's almost like they were standing in line waiting on one to get through so the other one could step up and say what else Job had lost. I mean, anybody could look at that and know Hey, there's something supernatural going on here. This is not a coincidence. And when we come into the trials of our life like that, those unexpected bombs that drop into our life, we must have the same attitude. Because if we think that, you know, God had nothing to do with this, or man, this is just the devil, or, or, or man, there's no point to this, or this is so random, it'll be more than we can handle. But we know that this was orchestrated by God. Uh, also, I find it interesting, too, in this verse 13, that Satan waited until Job's children were together and having a celebration. I mean, times were good. Things were going well. Everything, if it could be perfect, everything was perfect in both the life of Job and his family. And yet, isn't that the way that it happens so many times? Man, it was just another day. I remember it like it was yesterday. I, I got up in the morning and I made my coffee just like every other day. Don't we hear stories like that? And then it came. They were celebrating in Job's... Uh, they were, the, his children were celebrating in one of their eldest brother's house and they had no idea of the slaughter that was headed their way. You and I tonight... And I'm not, listen, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to be real. Uh, we're here on a Sunday night like we normally are, and thank God for that. Isn't it a blessing to be able to be in the house of God on a Sunday night? Amen. But you and I have no idea what's just around the corner. We just don't. There's no way we could. But what we can know is whatever comes uh, has, has to pass through the fingers of God to get to us. And so he waited strategically till they were having a celebration. 
Life was good, but there was no awareness of what was coming. And this is how it does turn in our life so many times. But uh, these trials, while they are unexpected by us, as I said, they are expected by God. But they're also, they're not just expected by God, they're ordained by God. Do, do we really believe Romans 8, 28, where it says, some things work together for good to them that love God? Is that what it said? It said all things. Not, not all things that we could say that, man, that is a good thing, and I'm so glad that I'm going through that. But all things work together for good to them that love God. And so we can give praise in all things. That's a, that's a lot easier to say than it is to practice. But I know it to be true. So God is in control of those unexpected trials. And uh, I, I've got some dear friends, and I'll say this and I'll move on to point two. We've got some dear friends in Mississippi and just a sweet family. We, there was always a, a Bible conference at their church every year. In fact, that's where I met Leah. And uh, they would let us stay in their house uh, when we were there for the conference. And um, it's been probably five or six years ago now. Um, one of their daughters, uh, Annalisa, she was 15. And she had a little, they lived in the woods, and she had a little rose garden out behind their house. And that was kind of like her prayer spot. She'd go there and pray. And one night, it was a cold night, uh, and, uh, and everybody started going to bed, and her brother realized, you know, where, where's Annalise at, you know? And so uh, he, he looked around, he didn't see her, and he went outside, and he found her dead on the ground. She just, something had happened, her heart just stopped. She just died right there as she was praying. And, you know, her parents said that the only thing that really got them through that is knowing that that was just God's planned time for her, that God was in control of that. What an unexpected thing. And certainly we've all had unexpected things that come into our life. And I'm so glad that God never gets caught off guard. So we see he's in control of the unexpected. But then number two, I would say he's in control of our financial trials as well. Look at verse 14. There came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the asses feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Isn't it incredible? Satan is just such a nice guy. He decided to spare the servants, didn't he? Is that what he did? He spared that one person who could strategically go and share that horrible news with Job. And so here in this, these few verses, we see that the Sabians uh, come and they slay the servants... And they take away the oxen and the asses that were plowing. And what's interesting about this is, uh, the, obviously the oxen and the asses, that was their means of plowing the crops. That was their means of feeding themselves and obviously a chief way of making some income. And yet here they are, they're being dragged away. And, you know, the Bible is so detailed here. And, you know, so many times we get in a trial and the, the first thing we want to do is we want to second guess everything. Well, we, we bring up the what ifs and the ifs, the if onlys. And what's so interesting about this is everybody was doing what they were supposed to do. The servants were plowing. They were doing what they were supposed to do. They weren't somewhere they weren't supposed to be. They, were, they didn't place themselves in a dangerous situation. And yet, though everybody was doing things right, well, then certain destruction comes upon them anyway. And so now these lost is. His way to plant crops, he's lost a major source of income. It was instantly gone. God is in control of our finances, and he's 
in control of our provision. And I'm not making excuses for being lazy. I'm not, listen, God, God has ordained uh, the ends, but He's also ordained the means to those ends. And that doesn't relinquish our responsibility, it actually enhances it. And, and I'm not encouraging laziness, I'm not saying those things. Uh, but, but I'll put it to you like this. My uncle is very, very successful businessman. Very, very successful. And um, one year he had, he had given us a really nice uh, gift for Christmas, and I was thanking him. And, and he was saying, you know, the, he said, the Lord's really blessed me. He said, I've worked hard for what I've got. But he said, there's a lot of people that worked hard, and it didn't turn out like it did with me. And so God, is in, he's in control of those things. He, and ultimately, this is important too, God gives us what He wants us to have. And if we could ever learn to be content with that, it would save us a whole lot of heartache and trouble. God gives us what He wants us to have, and if we could be happy with that, man, it would just stave off so many issues that we run into, so many self-inflicted wounds. Uh, you know, I'll say there's been times where I didn't know how we were going to pay the bills, and God provided. But there's also been times where it looked like we were going to have extra and it ended up we had just enough. Isn't it amazing how that works? There's been times where God came through for us miraculously. And, uh, you know, one thing I love is just talking about the Lord's provision. And I, I love hearing stories about that. And, and I know Pastor Stonehouse told the, door, the, the story about the $102. That, that amazes me. Exactly what he needed came in the mail to the dollar. That's amazing to me. I, I hear stories like that. And, and even in my own life, and I shared this with you recently, that you know, we've been renting our house in Alabama, and we're needing to sell it. And the renter was, was going to buy, but the problem was the roof was so old. I mean, it wasn't leaking. or I mean, it wasn't bad. It just was so old that the bank wouldn't, they wouldn't give a loan unless it had a new roof. Well, I didn't have $8,500 in my back pocket. So I'm like, how am I going to make this happen? And I began to pray, and, and I had a roofer go look at it, and I talked to him about it, and he said, listen, he said, there's only like one or two shingles missing, but, I mean, you can call State Farm and have them come look at it. He said, I'm telling you right now, I deal with them all the time. They're not going to cover this. But he said, it's free. It's not going to cost you anything. Might as well give them a call and have them come look at it. So I had scheduled them to come out on a Monday, okay? Well, the Friday before that Monday, I heard that there were some bad storms that had come through the area over there. I didn't think a whole lot about it. We have storms fairly regularly. So anyway, uh, I get a call that very next week from State Farm. They said, Mr. Vaughn, the, the storm that came through this past week ripped off over 80 shingles from your house, and we're going to cover the whole thing. <laughs> that roof was almost 20 years old, and in 20 years, not a single storm had come through there that ripped off shingles. And yet, one business day, before they were coming to look at it anyway, it just so happened that a storm came through that ripped off 80 shingles. You can call that coincidence if you want to, but you've got more faith than I do. And, uh, but I mean, we could share stories like that. And, and certainly God has come through. But listen, God has taken away too. I mean, really, if we're honest, if we're just being honest, we want to have a fat 401k in a retirement somewhere. We want to have plenty of money in the checking. We want to live to a place where we can do what we want to do and go where we want to go and not have to worry about money and never have to, I mean, just never have to worry about it. But there's no faith in that. If we, had a, we have a button we could push, y'all be honest, if nobody was looking, you may just, you know, sneak by and hit it on the way out. But, that's, but God will put us in places where we have to live by faith, and, and He comes through in an unexpected way. 
And I've seen Him do it many times in my life. And, and sometimes the Lord gives and sometimes He does take away. There's been times where things were really bad and I just had to trust the Lord to come through. And there's also been times where we had what I thought was extra, but then we found out about someone else in need and God was able to use us to help meet that need, put in our hearts to, to help people. God is in control of our financial prosperity. And the sooner we figure that out, the, the better off we're going to be. But number three, uh, I would say God is also in control of natural disasters. Look at verse 16. It says, While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God is fallen from heaven. Most scholars believe that's lightning. I believe that's probably what it is. Uh, the fire of God has fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Lightning falls, it kills the sheep, it kills the servants that are tending the sheep, save the one. Now, if you want to get technical, I guess you could say this was Satan. I mean, if you said that Satan did this, that would be an accurate statement. But the problem comes in when people use that statement, and what they mean is that Satan did it outside of the permission and decree of God. That's when you get yourself in a lot of trouble. If we lived in a world where Satan could roam about and do whatever he wanted to do and God could not stop him, we'd all be in a lot of trouble. But he can't, as we saw in, in the first part of chapter 1, uh, Satan had to get permission to do anything to Job. And God was very specific. He said, everything he has is in your hand except for his life and his health. He literally put the parameters up and said, you can only come this far. <laughs> what a comfort in our lives. But even when it comes to natural disasters, uh, I find this interesting too, and this is why I think it's, I really do think it's a, a game of semantics, and I do think that it can get uh, kind of unnecessary when we try to pinpoint, well, was that God? Was that Satan? Was it this? Was it? And, and here's the reason. Because technically, I mean, Satan's really powerful. And he can do some of the things that God can do. He's a great imitator. And here we see that Satan used lightning to kill the servants and to kill the sheep. He can do that. But here's the thing. God does that too. I think about uh, Nahum chapter 1 when it says that the Lord has his way in the whirlwind and uh, the clouds are the dust. He has his way in the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. And so the important thing to remember is ultimately that God is over it all. He's in control of it all. And so he could stop it. He chooses not to. He's got a purpose and a point in it. And so the difference is that when Satan acts, when he does something, he can only do it with the permission of God. And so therefore, God is always the primary cause and he has a purpose for it. Storms and natural disasters are more than just matter and energy acting upon chance. I know that to be true. God's got a purpose in all that. But number four, as I try to get these last three in quickly, number four, uh, God, now listen, y'all got to let me explain this. Don't write me off here. God is in control of the evil that men and women would do. It does not mean he's responsible for it, but it does mean that he has a plan for it. Look at verse 17. It says, while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, the Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels. And have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. So, so far, uh, we have seen that Satan is using human instruments to accomplish many of these heinous acts. 
We've seen two specific groups, as a matter of fact. We've seen the Sabians, and we've seen the Chaldeans. And by the permission of God, Satan put it in their heart to do these evil things. These people were not robots. Understand, they did what they wanted to do. But Satan gave them a want to, to do these things. And so, um, even the human evil that people would do, God has a plan and a purpose for it. I think this is so important because a lot of people say, well, I, you know, I know that God's in control, you know, but He can't do anything to defeat man's free will. Really? Go ask Nebuchadnezzar about that. I mean, he, this is the most powerful king that's ever lived, and he was eaten out of the pasture like a cow. Why? Because God wanted to show the king who the real king is and where he was getting his power from. Huh? I, wonder, I wonder if you were to go talk to Nebuchadnezzar about all that free will, what he'd say about that. Now, if we're talking about, I mean, people understand people do what they want to do, but even that's only by God's permission. And so, um, in this case, we find that God allowed Satan to put it in their heart to do these evil things. So even the evil that men and women would do, God has a purpose for it. And I brought this up recently because we just ended the book of Genesis and we were talking about Joseph and his brothers. But uh, look at what God did with the evil of Joseph's brothers. They freely chose to betray their brother but they were actually accomplishing the will of God by sending him to Egypt where he would be raised up and save the whole world from a drought. Evil, even when evil seems to win, it loses. <laughs> Poor Satan, you almost feel sorry for him sometimes. What about, what about the cross? The darkest day of human history when the precious, sinless, spotless Lamb of God who never did anything wrong and only did right and only healed people and only spoke truth and the world came together and put aside their differences for the purpose of killing the Lamb of God. The darkest day of humanity, even creation frowned upon that day. The, the sun refusing to shine and the, the earth quaking like it did. And I don't think we'll ever grasp the the gravity of what happened on that day. And yet, we look at what Judas did and what a horrible betrayal. We look at what the Jews and the Romans did, how horrible that was. And, and we look at Pilate who didn't even have enough backbone to use his power to save him. And yet, what was happening? God's will was being accomplished even by the evil that men and women would do. And if there was ever a time in history where Satan and the forces of evil had thought they won, it would have been that day. And yet they were accomplishing the greatest victory that this universe has ever seen. Even when evil seems to be winning, it's losing. Now, in those three days' time, from the crucifixion to prior to the resurrection, it must have seemed like the greatest defeat ever. Can you put yourselves in the disciples' shoes? What about Mary's? I mean, that was, for all intents and purposes, that was her child. He was God, but that was her child. Can you imagine the conversation? I don't know that there was a lot of conversation. Can you imagine being Simon Peter, having, having denied Jesus Christ, even cursing his name to save his own skin? And the last thing he remembers is Jesus Christ looking at him as the cock is crowing for the third time. Can you imagine going to bed with, at night with that? <laughs> Must have been the greatest defeat ever. 
They must have greatly questioned whether or not God was really God. Whether or not Jesus was really who He said He was. If God was in control and He was really the Messiah, this would have never happened. Do you ever say that in your trials? And yet look at what God did. He was right, wasn't He? We don't always get to see that in this life. But one day we will get to eternity and see things from His perspective and we're never going to say that He did anything wrong. He's even in control of the evil that men and women would do. I think about Ephesians six twelve, where it says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And as I said, God is not responsible for personal evil, but He has a plan in it and for it. And even the evil that someone might do is under the sovereignty of God. I think about Proverbs 21 and verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. And what a comfort it is to know that no one can touch us outside of the divine permission of God. What this means is, and I've got to hurry. Y'all need to amen faster. What this means is, that we will not leave this walk of life one second before God's appointed time. Not one second. But on the flip side, it means that we're not going to stay one second longer. When our appointed time comes to die, it doesn't matter if you're laying in a bed in the intensive care unit with the greatest doctors in the world surrounding you, you are going home. Now what this does on the front side is we don't have to be afraid. Listen, we don't, have, we don't have to be sucked into the fear-mongering that we see in our world. Listen, we don't have to be stupid. We don't have to be... i, I got news for you. We don't have to be afraid of COVID. We, we, I mean, I'm not, I'm not throwing rocks. Please don't misunderstand me. But I, I've been amazed at what I have seen among professing Christians. As if somebody is going to die of some disease and get up there to heaven and... And God turn around and look and then, and then have to do a double take and say, what are you doing here? I had so much more that I wanted you to do. Well, I wish you'd lock yourself in a room for two years. What is wrong with you? No. Listen, we don't, we don't have to be afraid of natural disasters. And understand, I'm not encouraging some kind of fatalism or, or being stupid. Now listen, when I was over there and it was one of those days, I was in a hole somewhere. I've often said that, listen, if God wants me, He can have me, but He's going to have to come in a hole and get me. Amen? And He can do that. Um, we, don't, we don't have to be afraid of the government. We, we don't have to be afraid of persecution if it comes. Because nothing can happen to us outside of the divine permission of God. But, but the other way that this brings comfort to us is, God forbid, if, if one of our loved ones should die in a tragedy, maybe maybe at a young age or, or maybe in a way that man, we just weren't expecting, maybe a car wreck or maybe a, a motorcycle wreck or you know, whatever the case may be, we don't have to beat ourselves up with all of the scenarios of, man, if I had just done this or if they had just done that or if, if only this had happened. Listen, what ifs and if onlys will drive you out of your mind. <laughs> when really it's just up to God. It really is. God's in control of that. There's people every day that do the right things that die. And there's people every day that live a, 
a very risky lifestyle and, and they live. I, you know, God's in control of all that. But then, number five, and this, I really kind of got ahead of myself. I just rehashed real quick. But number five, he is in control of our death. I hope you realize that. He is appointed. It is appointed unto man. Wants to die. And after this, the judgment. That, that doesn't mean there's just a general day of death. No, it's an appointed time. An X on the calendar. We're going to get into this by the time we get to Job 14. But it says that God has given us bounds that we cannot pass. He's got a calendar with our day on it. Uh, verse 18 says, While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young men, and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. God told Satan not to touch Job's life, but he did not do the same with the servants or with Job's children. By divine permission, Satan took them out. And as I said, we, you know, God's in control of that. I don't want to rehash all that. But I do want to, before we get to this very last thing, and I'm, I'm done, um, I do want to say that I know sometimes we read the Bible, we get used to it, we kind of get the Sunday school mentality, but put yourself in Job's shoes here. Can you, I mean, can you imagine getting a phone call like that? Four of them right in a row. Your business is gone, your servants are gone, your children's gone. Can you imagine that? I, cannot, I mean, it would be horrific to lose one child. I mean, I would imagine the death of a child would be one of the greatest pains that a parent or, or person could ever feel. And he lost all of them at once without even one chance to say goodbye. I cannot imagine. And yet, God is in control. That's the only comfort we can find in these situations like this. And in closing, and I'll wrap it up with this, but Job did seem to understand that God was sovereign over everything that was happening to him, and he responded in worship. Look at verse 20. Then Job arose and rent his mantle. That was a common sign of grief in that culture. He shaved his head, and he fell down and worshiped upon the, or found down upon the ground and worshiped. He said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord had taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly, or, or charged God as if he had done something wrong. That's really what it's saying. You see, when it comes to our trials, and this is what we have to get, when it comes to our trials, we will either worship God for who He is or we will curse Him because He's not what we think He should be. You see, when we get in our trials, we're either going to raise accusations against God or we're going to worship Him and understand that He's in charge and we're not. I think about what Romans 9 says, Who are thou, O man, that speakest against God? What, what can we say? I don't have the knowledge He has. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the integrity. I'm not playing with a full deck. How could I judge God by the standard of my own opinion? Sometimes I want to. I mean, in the flesh, we want to. God, why is my wife not healed? Why has she dealt with this condition for over three years? Why, why did you, in the midst of all this, move us to Utah? I mean, we could go down the line, but I get really scared when I, when I think about, like, railing an accusation against Him. I mean, I'm scared to death to do that. I don't know. 
But I know that uh, the judge of all the earth will do right. I do know that. I do know that. And I imagine eternity's perspective is going to make it all come into focus. And I imagine there's going to come a day where we worship Him and thank Him for these very things. And so we need to recognize who we are and who He is. And Job clearly understood everything that he had came from God. Understand, you, you do realize, and I know this is not, I know this is not shouting and preaching. You do realize that everything you have doesn't belong to you, right? You don't have one thing that's yours, not one thing. Your house isn't yours. Your car isn't yours. Your children aren't even yours. Did you know that? Your children are on loan from God to raise them in the nurture and admission of the Lord and then send them out as arrows against the enemy. Your, your, listen, your life isn't even yours. There's not one breath you take that isn't a gift from God. That's why we're going to give an account for what we do with it before God. And so when we understand that, that nothing we have really belongs to us anyway, we can't get upset when it gets taken from us. How dare you, God, take away anything that you gave me, fill in the blank. How can we get upset about that? It belongs to Him. That's the only thing, that's the only comfort that will get us through when we analyze our trials and understand for all of the questions we can't answer. We can know where our trials come from. And we can be comfortable.